going wherever he calls us. John chapter 20 this morning. It's a privilege to be uh, back in the pulpit. I know uh, it's, it's, it's kind of the preacher in me, I guess. It's uh, hard for me sometimes to give up the, the pulpit on a Sunday morning. But I appreciate my friend uh, Mike Martin and uh, him bringing the word so faithfully last Sunday. And uh, we are thankful for uh, the ministry of Baptist World Mission. But it's good to be back uh, in the pulpit this morning and to be able to preach once again from this great book, John, the Gospel of John, in chapter number 20. Uh, again, we're coming down to uh, the end of this book. We just have chapter 21 left. Uh, tremendous chapter. Looking forward to preaching through, uh, Lord willing, chapter 21 as well. But we are in a resurrection account by the inspired Word of God, by the very God-breathed words of God, we are in this inspired account of the resurrection from John's perspective as an eyewitness in this Gospel of John. And the message is entitled, Resurrection Witness, because we see once again the witnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, Paul summarizes... Christ's post-resurrection appearances. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. In all, the Bible records 17 separate post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Now think about it. In Jewish law, in the Mosaic law, there was a requirement that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So Jewish law required two or three witnesses for a fact to be considered true. Well, the number of witnesses to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ far exceeded Two or three. So the fact of Christ's bodily resurrection is undeniable. The competency and character of the witnesses, along with the sheer number of witnesses, provide irrefutable evidence to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if Christ be not raised, then our faith is in vain. But once again, we are gathered here this morning on this Lord's Day on a Sunday, a resurrection day, and we gather on Sunday, on the first day of the week, commemorating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we thank God that our faith is not in vain and that we have the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we work our way through these verses at the end of this chapter, I want us to see, first of all, the word peace. The theme in verses 19 and 20 is this word peace. John 20 and verse 19, once again, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Christ brought peace to the disciples. 
Here is this scared and somewhat directionless group of Christ's followers. They're huddled in a locked room out of fear of the Jews. They were fearful, they were fearful that the religious leaders would come after them next. There was a fearfulness. There was a fair amount of confusion, as we talked about a couple weeks ago and dealing with Mary Magdalene and, of course, the apostles coming in and seeing the empty tomb and Christ's appearance to Mary, and she thought he was the gardener, and we spent some time working through that first part of this chapter, and there was a fair amount of confusion. There was a fair amount of consternation, of fear. And they're in this locked room out of fear of the Jews, fearful of what might happen next, and Christ appeared to them. He just appears. He's now in his glorified body. He's now able to vanish away and then reappear. He's able to overcome limitations of time and space, in a sense, in his glorified body. Yet, we see here in verse 20 that his body, even in its glorified state, it had the scars visible in his hands and in his side. And then we read there in verse 20, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. What was Jesus' statement to them in verse 19? Peace. Peace be unto you. The peace that Christ brings to our lives is one of security. It's one of satisfaction. It's a peace that is internal and it overcomes even circumstances of trouble of trial, of tribulation, brings harmony in the midst of disunity and courage in the midst of fear. That is the peace that Christ brings. And do we not need the peace of Christ in our world today? All we got to do is look up the headlines. Maybe you were on your phone this morning or on the internet or turned on the news and don't even want to turn on the news because there's so many negative headlines. It seems at times that our democratic republic is hanging by a thread with all of the controversies and the outright sin and perversion of our land. But we as believers, we understand the peace of God that passes all understanding. Philippians 4 and verse number 7. And we know from Romans 5 and verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Christ, there is peace with God, being justified by faith, having repented of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We have peace with God. Justification by faith, Romans 5 and verse 1. We have the peace of God that we just described from Philippians 4, verse number 7. The peace that passes all understanding. In the midst of trials and tribulations and fear and turmoil in our lives, we can have the peace of God. And then we know that there is the necessity of peace with men. And the reason why so many times there is not peace with men is because men don't know the peace of God and they don't have peace with God. And we know that in this world there will be tribulations. And man is born under trouble as the sparks fly upward. But there is peace in Jesus Christ. And that is the true and the real answer for all of the turmoil and all the wars and all the fightings and all the division that is so prevalent in our culture, 
Ultimately, the answer is found in Jesus Christ, who brings true peace. And the disciples needed this word from the Lord, didn't they? And God knows when we are in those times of turmoil and fear and discouragement and struggle. And he desires to bring us his peace. He meets with his disciples there. And he says, peace be unto you. We also see in this passage, we see not just peace, but we see proof. He showed them his wounds there in verse 20. The visible wounds brought assurance to the disciples that they were truly seeing Jesus Christ. And not some ghost, not some apparition. Jesus Christ died a literal death. He didn't just go into soul sleep. He didn't just go unconscious from the pain. No, he died a physical death. He rose bodily. In in his glorified body, there are the visible scars. He was not just a ghost or an apparition. He bodily rose from the dead and now appears in his glorified body. And there's evidence of the wounds from his crucifixion. This evidence strengthened their spirits and it brought new resolve to their hearts. We read there in verse number 20 that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And you know, I can't help but think how many times that this world and even in our own lives as believers, there is such a desire, a thirst, and a search for happiness. We're looking for happiness in all the wrong places, the elusive butterfly of happiness. We go searching after it, and we're constantly seeking after happiness through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But we're promised there in 1 John 2 that those lusts, they pass away. The world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So the true peace results in a true joy a true happiness, an internal joy that comes not from fleeting circumstances of highs and lows and emotion and celebrations, but a joy that comes from within as one has peace with God and experiences the peace of God and through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there is a true happiness, a joy that satisfies So we see peace, we see proof. But then we also see, in verse 21, we see commission. We see commission. We go down to verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. He gives them a message of peace. He assures them, he comforts them, he calms their fears, they are made glad, they are Receiving the joy of the Lord, a confidence, an assurance. But then he gives them a commission. He gives them a job to do. Christ had fulfilled the Father's will. He cried out, it is finished. He had fulfilled God's redemption plan. He was soon to ascend up into glory and to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God and intercede for us. But now he has given them a job to go out and to make disciples of all nations, commissioning them to share the gospel, to share the message of his death, burial, and resurrection. And isn't that the way it is in our lives? We have the peace of God. We have 
the joy of the Lord. He comes and he brings that peace. And then he says, get busy. I'm giving you the strength that you need to fulfill the will of God for your life. There is a job to do. And it's hard in our culture today that emphasizes laziness and emphasizes sitting back and collecting a government check and having someone else pay our way and instant gratification and all the different ways in which our culture breeds a lack of work ethic. As a matter of fact, an article I read this week that talked about the disdain that our culture has promoted for blue-collar jobs and that more and more young people are growing up and they're thinking that blue-collar jobs are below them and how sad as various industries are having difficulty filling positions because there is not... There aren't enough young people who are willing to get their fingers dirty and do some blue-collar work and learn some skills and get their hands and their feet into places and fix things and do things that would be considered blue-collar work. And those industries are struggling to meet all the different jobs, to find people to fill all those positions. And it's in part because of a lack of work ethic in our culture today. And I can't help but see in our culture so many times lazy Christians who don't want to get active in the service of the Lord, who don't want to work for God, not just a paycheck job. Yes, there's vocational ministries, and there is a lack in vocational ministries, missionaries coming off the field, and there's fewer and fewer men and women who are accepting the call to go and to fill those positions in vocational ministry on a mission field and in vocational ministry and evangelism and in the pastorate. There's, yes, lack in those areas, but even in just the regular service of the Lord in our local churches. How often do we see Christians who are lazy? I'm so thankful for opportunities that God gives us to minister and to serve here. Ways in which we can help out in the ministry. We have the fantastic Saturday coming up and people putting their names down and looking for ways to help. And so many times we don't grow until we are pulled out of our comfort zone. Until we are stretched as the eagle will take the eaglet out of the nest and force it to fly and learn to flap its wings. So often we have to be pulled out of our comfort zone in order to grow We have to go to the gym and we have to exercise some sort of muscle restraint and constraints and resistance in order to grow that muscle, in order to rehab whatever it is that we lost or in order to lose whatever we have gained. We have to exercise. We have to put in the work. We have to do the things that are necessary and the disciplines for physical health. And what do we do for our spiritual health? What do we do in the service of the Lord? The disciples were commissioned. He didn't say, okay, peace be unto you. Now, let's grab some Lay's potato chips and a diet, and uh, let's watch the world go on, and I'll come back again someday and rescue you. Is that what he said? He did promise that he would come again. But what did he say? As he had told them before, he said, go out, get busy. There is work, there is service, there is ministry, there is evangelism. And in Luke, he says, occupy till I come. 
Where is it that we are occupied today? Where are we serving? Where are we faithful? Where are we in our evangelism? Where are we in our service for the Lord and the exercise of our gifts? Too often we just want to sit and soak and sour when God has called us to serve and be faithful. God had a job for them to do and they would have God's power and they would have his authority to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We know the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples. He says, of all nations, teach, make disciples of all nations. We know in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, he would say to them in just a, a little while, in Acts 1, before he ascended up, he said, ye shall be witnesses. And he talks about going into the, the Jerusalems and the Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he had given the church, he's giving the disciples as the foundation, as the gift to the church in the foundational state, the foundational sense, as we'll be looking at spiritual gifts in our Sunday school hour, we've talked about the apostles and their foundational role in the church. And then he promised in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of God. And we have the privilege and the opportunity to be a part of God's church and to do his work. And he not only calls us to his work, and only authorizes his work and gives us the power to do his work, but then as he chooses and calls us and we do his work, he desires to reward us for doing the work that we could only do through him and by his power and by his strength and with his authority. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he desires to use us. He doesn't use the angels. Yes, they're messengers. Yes, they have a role. But he doesn't do his work by having a bunch of angels come down and do some magic and sprinkle some pixie dust on the earth. And all the things that God wants done, the angels do. No, he chooses to use us. And he knows the apostles are going to face resistance. He knows they're going to face persecution. He knows that they're going to go out into the highways and the byways. He knows in some cases they're going to be martyred. And church tradition teaches us that all of them eventually die by martyrdom. He knows that. And yet he calls them to do the work. And he says, I have given you the authority and by my power, you can go forth and do the work that I've called you to do. We see commission. We've seen peace. We've seen already in this passage uh, these words peace and proof and commission, but also in verse 22, we see pledge. A pledge. Verse 22, we read, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. So this is an interesting verse. Is Jesus giving them as if they're some sort of earthly priest. And if people come to them for confession, that they have a authority to absolve someone or to forgive someone of their sins as some religions practice an earthly priest who becomes the mediator between God and men. And that earthly priest has the power of absolution or the power to forgive. Is that what this verse is teaching? I don't think so. He's saying, he is saying that they have, by the authority of God, the 
ability to exercise biblical discernment and by the evidence of God's holy word look at a person's life and when someone repents of their sin, believes in Christ as their Savior upon the authority of God's word, the church can say that person is a saved individual. That person is born again. That person is on their way to heaven by the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in his name. They are given as a church, as as apostles, and then as a church, we are given God's authority, not by our authority, not by our human rationale, but by the authority of God's word, the truth of the word of God, we can look at an individual and we can, by the testimony of that individual who's repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, by some measure of evidence of their faith, the church is given by the authority of God's word to be able to speak to a person and say, yes, you are a believer. You are born again. It's not that priest doing the forgiving, doing the absolving, doing the baptizing, the sprinkling, or the whacking with a wet piece of hyssop or whatever, or pouring over their head. It's the declaration that based upon the word of God, as someone turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ and his death beyond resurrection, the church has the authority to say that individual is a believer. So how do we practice that here at Berean? When a person trusts Christ as their Savior, they give testimony. We, well, if they come for church membership, we go through a time of testimony. We ask them to write it down, to verbalize that. We might ask a few questions. Ultimately, that decision is between them and the Lord. Ultimately, it is between them and God. But the church has the authority from God to declare whether that person has received Christ as their Savior or not, in the, in the sense of taking the Word of God and applying it in their situation, in their testimony. And that's all that Jesus is saying to the disciples. He's saying, the church, you as the apostles, as the foundation of the church, you have the authority from God to look at a person's life And as they repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, as they declare their faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and rose again, based on the authority of God's word, you can declare them a saved individual. Now, by that same word of God, we can look at a person's life who may make an outward claim, may make a profession, but if their life does not show evidence and does not back up that claim, John writes another epistle in 1 John where he gives clear, distinct evidence of a true believer and what a true believer should look like. So there again, it's that same idea of the authority of God through his word as the church applies that to an individual's life, the church has the authority to say, There is evidence of your salvation or there is not. You have come to faith in Christ, as the Bible says, or you are not truly a believer because you are adding works. You're believing in a different Jesus. You're looking at your own life and saying you are justifying yourself and then what you can't do, Jesus will make up the difference. 
No, we're saying by the word of God, faith alone in Christ alone. And then as that person gives evidence of that and gives testimony to that, follows in believers' baptism, they are publicly saying, I have trusted in Christ as my Savior, turned from my sin, put my faith and trust in Christ, and Christ alone for my salvation. And the church has the authority to declare that by the word of God. One commentary says it this way, as Jesus said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, And in verse 23, whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. One commentary says this, this reception of the Spirit was in anticipation of the day of Pentecost and should be understood as a partial, limited gift of knowledge, understanding, and empowerment until Pentecost 50 days later. So as he's giving them the Holy Spirit, receive ye the Holy Spirit, he is saying that in anticipation of that day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and he is authorizing them to go forth by the power of the Holy Spirit and to preach the gospel and to declare the truth of the word of God and to give testimony of the truth of God's word into those who repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in him for their salvation. There's a lot in that verse. There's a lot in that passage. But if we really think of this passage and we look at it biblically, we understand and it gives us discernment because, of there's, because there's a lot of false doctrine. There's a lot of false teaching that's out there. There's a lot of works-based salvation. There's a lot of adding Jesus to your life. There's a lot of people who have a false view of Jesus and they are believing in the wrong Jesus. And there's religions out there that teach Jesus does so much and then you do the rest. And there's a mutual type of justification. Watch out. Look out. Be discerning. Apply the truth of God's word. Because there's a very, very shallow view of Christ and salvation that is in our culture. And it is essentially taking and just adding Jesus to an already worldly life and saying, well, now I have Jesus like a good luck charm, like a rabbit's foot, like an exercise plan or a diet plan, and I've now added Jesus to my life, and now he is going to make me prosperous, he's going to make me healthy, he's going to bring fulfillment, he is going to help me with all my psychological needs, and he's almost like a therapeutic Jesus. And we've added a therapy Jesus system to our lives, and it's very dangerous. Because there's a lot of people who are claiming Jesus. And I am not here to be condemning and judgmental of every other person and every other preacher and every other group and every other denomination. That's not my point. But there's a lot of easy easy believism and false professions that are not based upon a true repentance and faith in Christ but on and adding Jesus to my life and to be kind of my therapy to make my life better and more fulfilled. And as Emily just sang in her song, I need to go wherever he leads me and I need to lose myself in him. When Jesus said, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow him, he is saying you are Raising the white flag of surrender. You are 
confessing your utter unworthiness, your sinfulness that condemns you to an eternal hell. And you are placing your faith and your trust in Christ and Christ alone as the only way of salvation and not through any works of righteousness that I have done. And based upon that truth, the disciples can go forth with evangelism And there's this pledge of the Holy Spirit that they will receive in fulfillment of prophecy, in fullness as the Holy Spirit comes and indwells them. He makes that pledge to them here as he had promised in John 14 and John 15 about the Holy Spirit coming. The Comforter will come and he will guide you into all truth and he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And in a sense, he's repeating that promise. He's making that pledge to them. And he's saying, you are going to receive the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of prophecy in all of his fullness. And you have a job to do. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, the church will be able to discern and to be able to say that person is a true believer or that person is not. And there is evidence of a true believer. And when they aren't showing that evidence, there's even an exercise of church discipline that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 and Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians where there has to be a church exercise of discipline upon the authority of God's word and says there's something about that person's life in unrepentant sin and rebellion against God where we have to cast them out. And upon doing that, Lord willing, they will repent. Now there's steps before that. There's steps before they're ever cast out. There are far, there's a lot of work before it ever gets to that point. But at that point, the church is again exercising the authority of God to say that person doesn't belong in our midst because they're showing evidence that they're not truly a believer. And we cannot have a member of our church who is not truly born again. That's the first and essential step to church membership. So a lot there in that verse and those couple of verses that I want us to understand because it's essential for understanding the church and the authority that God has given the church. We see peace. We see pledge. We see commission. And then we see in verse number 23, we see pardon. Pardon. Forgiveness of sin, as we just mentioned there. Again, Christ was not saying that disciples had actual power to forgive someone of their sin. Only God can do that. But he was telling them that they would have the authority of God to declare based on the word of God that when a person repents, their sins are forgiven. And if they do not repent, then they will die in their sins. Pardon. And then verses 24 and 25, we see another word. We see doubt. And this brings a particular person into this account. A man by the name of Thomas, who we often know of as Doubting Thomas. Now, was there an element of Thomas's life that was suspicious, cynical maybe, doubting? Sure. Maybe he was from Missouri. He had to see it, to believe it, right? The show-me state. But I don't want us to be too critical of Thomas. Okay, I want us to really understand the compassion of Jesus. Because I have to admit that in some ways I relate to Thomas because I have a little bit of cynicism in me. I have to be careful. It's a a pessimistic kind of view sometimes that I have to work on. 
because I'm, I'm a realist. And I like to say pessimist. I'm a realist, right? You know what an optimist is, a pessimist in denial. Anyway, <laughs> Thomas, gives, is, 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 Thomas is given uh, a lot of criticism. And, and yes, to a certain degree, Thomas was doubtless, or was, was, was faithless, excuse me. He was doubting. But we read here that Thomas was not with them when Jesus first appeared in that room. And then in verse 25, the other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger to the print of the, the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now let's back up for a minute. The disciples, the other eleven, were in that room, in that locked room, for fear of the Jews. And it wasn't until they saw the scars that they were made glad. So were they not also very similar to Thomas? But we point out Thomas. But I want us to see not so much the faithlessness of Thomas and the disciples, but of the compassion and the care of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who in the midst of a time of loneliness and discouragement, of fear, Jesus came to Thomas, came to the disciples, and even though Thomas should have listened to the testimony of the apostles and believed them, still in the compassion and in the care of our Savior Jesus Christ, he met Thomas where he was at. And in verse number 26, and after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. But Tom, and Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. What a testimony. Thomas spoke a verse of deity. My Lord and my God. Thomas referred to Jesus Christ as the God of the universe, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. This is one of the greatest proof texts in all of Scripture for the deity of Christ. And out of the, word, out of the mouth of Thomas came these words, my Lord and my God. And isn't that just like our Savior, Jesus Christ, to come to us in our times of doubt, in our times of fear, when we're in consternation, when we're in turmoil, and we don't have answers and we're struggling and Christ wants us to mature he wants us to grow he wants us to have his peace he wants us to know him and to grow in our knowledge of him through the circumstance through the difficulty through the trial through the tribulation he is maturing us he wants us to increase our faith and to experience his peace and that's what I want to emphasize here. Thomas's belief, the apostles' belief, but once again, God's peace. The peace that Jesus Christ brought in his compassion and his love for his own. Thomas and the disciples were convinced. As Jesus said to him in verse 29, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. He says to Thomas, you and the disciples have had the privilege of seeing me in my physical body, in the incarnation. You've now seen me in my glorified post-resurrection states. 
But blessed are those who will never see me physically in my incarnation or in my glorified state, yet will believe. And who is he referring to? Us. And all those who trusted Christ as their Savior or will trust Him as their Savior without ever having seen Him physically in His incarnation or in His glorified body. What a powerful and peaceful message. A message of love. A message that shows us the heart of our Lord for us who though we did not have that privilege of the apostles to walk with Him and to talk with Him, we have the Holy Spirit, God with us. We have that deposit. We have that pledge. We have that earnest down payment. And we have Christ at the right hand of the throne of God interceding for us, and we are commanded to boldly come before the throne of grace. And to pray effectually and to pray always. And we're thankful for his intercessory work. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we're thankful that Christ meets us where we are at. That he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we're going through. Times of uncertainty, times of unknown, times of fear, times of discouragement, times of loneliness whatever it might be, Christ desires to show us, in a sense, his hands and his side and his feet and the scars and to assure us with the promises of his word that he cares for us. And then he brings other believers together in a local church and we bear one another's burdens and we help carry each other's load. There's a certain load that we all have to carry. But we read in Galatians that there is also a way in which other believers help carry our burdens. And that's one of the purposes of the local church. And the people who don't come to church and aren't part of the local church, they miss out on that. And yes, they may know Christ, but they don't have other believers coming alongside and helping carry their burden. They're trying to carry the weight of the world without their local church that God has ordained. As the disciples came together, they helped each other. As Thomas was brought in that midst of that group, the apostles together with Thomas received that assurance. And we see that compassion of our Lord who loved them and even spoke prophetically of those who will believe without ever having seen him. And then we see in verses 30 and 31, John kind of summarizing the whole purpose of this gospel. Now, we have one more chapter to go, and I'm looking forward to preaching through chapter 21. And I'm praying about where the Lord would have me go next. I've got a couple of books of the Bible I've been praying about and thinking about and considering and just asking the Lord to give me wisdom as to know where to go next. But we see in verses 30 and 31, we see John's purpose. We see, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. God ordained, he, or, he, he orchestrated, he inspired, he God-breathed the very words of the Gospel of John so that John wrote only the words that God would have him to write while in, including John's personality and his experiences and his eyewitness accounts. But there were many other things that John said he could write 
that God did not allow him to write. They're not contained in this book. And he says in verse 31, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. He says, I have given you, I have written exactly what God wanted me to write with this express purpose in mind that ye may believe. And though there are many other things that I could have written about that are not contained in this book, there is everything that God would have me to write right here and everything that every person who reads this book needs to know in order to be saved, in order to come to Christ in repentance and faith. And we see the heart of John that she might believe, that she might know that she have eternal life. That's what God wants. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We see that love coming through as John finishes this chapter and appeals once again that whosoever believeth will have eternal life. And John is repeating that purpose, that theme of this book And then he'll go on to chapter 21 and we'll see another post-resurrection appearance. And we'll see a powerful account of the restoration of the Apostle Peter. And he's called a further service. But as we conclude this morning, is there someone here, as we have finished this chapter... And as we have looked at these verses in verses 30 and 31, you would say, I've not received Christ as my Savior. I've not truly come to him in saving faith. I have not truly believed. Then won't you today make today the day of salvation? Won't today you answer and obey this command to repent? Won't you today believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and through believing have life? Through his name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great passage. Lord, so much more that we could say. But Lord, we're thankful for everything that you inspired, that was written by the inspiration of God, that John wrote by the very breath of God. With this purpose, with this theme in mind, that believing ye might have life, that we might have life through your name. Lord, I ask that you will do your work in hearts. I pray that, Lord, as believers, that we will be renewed in our love for you and our desire to reach others with the gospel. And I pray that, Lord, you will remove our doubts and our discouragements that we'll find peace in you, the peace of God, and then peace with men. And, Lord, if there's someone here who does not have peace with God, Lord, may today be the day they turn from their sin, turn to you in saving faith, and experience that justification by faith which brings peace, the peace with God that results in the peace of God that enables us to have peace with men. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.